않았어 So there's a very pity aphorism in Tibetan Buddhism. Top down dewe shed up ni. Chingwa wo. Shed up down dewe top ni. Chingwa wo. You've heard it before in English, and that is skillful means divorced from wisdom is bondage. Wisdom divorced from skillful means is bondage. Skillful means above all means compassion, but in this context we can also place it firmly in the Mahayana context, where the wisdom really is the ultimate wisdom, ultimate bodhicitta. Seen in the sutta context as realization of emptiness, in the Dzogchen Mahamudra context as pristine awareness, ultimate bodhicitta. And then the skillful means is then relative bodhicitta. So it's saying that clearly this one without the other is incomplete. Analogy that I've heard is like a, uh, a a blind man carrying a cripple on his shoulders, and the cripple can see very well, but can't walk, and the blind man can walk very well, but he can't see. And so, skillful means, and that that really includes a whole array of skillful means. It's technology, it's science, it's plumbing, it's architecture, it's accounting. Skillful means things that we do in the world that could be of some service, some benefit. Uh, without wisdom, blind, and then intelligence, wisdom, understanding, insight, all of that, all very well. But if you don't have skillful means, then you're, you're a cripple. You can see what needs to be done and you can't do it, right? Good vision, cripple, no movement. So when it comes to relative bodhicitta, well, this turns out to be indispensable for the practice of Mahamudra and Dzogchen. Mahamudra and Dzogchen really are only Mahayana practices. They're not outside. So one can engage in the practices, of course, with any kind of motivation. But they're no longer Mahamudra, they're no longer Dzogchen. It's the outer facade, it's a shell, but it doesn't have the content. So when we think of relative bodhicitta, it's very easy, if I, if I ask you, what's relative bodhicitta? I think you know, you'd all get the right answer. It's the aspiration for perfect enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. Anybody can do that. Would you like? Would you like that? It would be kind of like giving people a Christmas list. Would you like this for Christmas? Would you like to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings? Sure. Why not? Sounds good to me. You know. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm not really busy these days. <laughs> the bodhicitta, as so articulated, is accurate, but it's the tip of the iceberg. If it doesn't have the rest of the iceberg underneath, it's an ice cube. It's just a little floating little piece of almost nothing on the surface of the ocean of samsara. And so if we look deeper beneath the surface, then this bodhicitta must be rooted. It's, it's simply not a matter of opinion, and it's not a matter of doctrine or dogma or closed-mindedness. It just has to be rooted in what are called the not often called this, but I will call it the four greats, but to list them then the familiar great Loving-kindness, Mahamaitri, Mahakaruna, great compassion, Mahamudita, great empathetic joy, Mahaupeksha, great equanimity. Those simply are non-negotiable. They, if they're not there, bodhicitta isn't happening. It's a facsimile. It's just an apparition. 
But for the four greats to be present, they in turn must be rooted, as we go down deeper to the base of the pyramid, they must be rooted in the four measurables. And the four measurables, so immeasurable loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. So, last couple of days in the morning we've been attending to the cultivation of immeasurable loving-kindness. And it's called immeasurable because all the barriers are broken down. It's measurable, it's finite, it's enclosed, it's limited. When it goes, fl- gushes out in one direction, like to one's family, but not to the next door neighbor family. To one's own ethnic group, but not other ethnic groups. To one's own religious group, but not other, reli- to one's own species, but not other species. To nice people, but not to nice people, unnice people. To virtuous people, but not those awful people. So then that's just better than nothing, but it's completely tinged with, ment- with the mental affliction of attachment. So when all the barriers are broken down, what the Christians so beautifully call unconditional love, regardless of how other people behave, the, the flow of loving-kindness is even, it's constant, it's powerful, and it's genuine. And if it doesn't have any barriers, nothing, nowhere where it blocks, nowhere it's blocked, then that's immeasurable. And the, the immeasurable, I'll just focus on loving-kindness love this morning. We have more days to go. Um, but this immeasurable loving-kindness is an aspiration. It comes with an emotion. For some people, there's a lot of emotion when they experience very deep loving-kindness. And others, not so much emotion. But it's still genuine. So I think it's really a mistake. Just temperamentally, some people are more devotional, some people are more emotional than others. I don't think that's a good thing or a bad thing. Emotional people can be such a, what's a nuisance. <laughs> they can be so irritating. You know, like, oh, get a grip. You know, this is what the Northern Europeans say to the Southern Europeans. Get a grip. <laughs> the Germans tell the Italians, get a grip. <laughs> what do you mean, get a grip? You know? <laughs> Melt, you old, you old German. <laughs> North Americans tell the South Americans, South Americans, you know, the same thing. So, no great benefit in being emotional, but then no great benefit in being non-emotional. That is actually secondary. What is primary is the aspiration. Is the aspiration of that or not? If the emotion is there, no aspiration. Who cares? It's just a lot of blah, 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 blah. Emotion coming up. Who cares, really? So it's an aspiration. And there's something really beautiful and something very utterly unifying, quite glorious and universally virtuous about these four measurables, and if we just focus on loving-kindness, it's one of those things that needs no justification, it needs no defense. Uh, if you don't agree, you're wrong. <laughs> and that is, loving-kindness is a virtue. And if you don't get that, you should really get some mental help. Because the alternatives are indifference, you just don't care about other people, maybe even about yourself, or malevolence. So you have your choices. It's loving-kindness, indifference, or malevolence. So if that, that just doesn't need any argument. It doesn't, it's, it's one of those, I, can, I think it's an a priori virtue. I really do think so. For anybody of sound mind, and I don't care what their ideology is, the most flaming, reductionist, materialist, the fundamentalist Christian, the, the Muslim, the Buddhist, the Hindu, whoever they may, the agnostic, whatever, if you can't see this, then I think there's nothing to talk about. Loving-kindness is a virtue in any possible world throughout space and time.
because the alternatives are clearly inferior. And there's nothing more to say. And you either accept that or you don't. If you, if you do, then good. And so these four measurables particularly, and in that sequence, starting with love and kindness, these really are universal. And, and, with, and although that sequence, that particular formatting, is Indian, um, it's, there's nothing you know, unique to India about these, these four measurables. You do find them in that sequence, these four, in the Patanjali Yoga Sutra. So they're common to the Buddhist and Hindu traditions. But of course, the other great religious traditions of the world, and then many ways of thinking, views of reality, and so forth, that are not religious, also embrace. Loving kindness is a virtue, compassion is a virtue, empathy, empathetic joy is a virtue, equanimity, the impartiality of the heart, as a virtue. So this, I love teaching it, uh, because again, as I mentioned yesterday, I think, it's, it's hard to have a really nasty motivation to cultivate the four miserable. It's kind of like they help you out there. Um, but it's unifying. It's unifying. There are many things that divide us, and, and some divisions are real and important, so let's not pretend otherwise. Materialism is not the same as, you know, non-materialism. There are, there are results, there are consequences to our beliefs, to our values, and ways of life, and they're not, they're not equally good. That's completely silly to think they're equally good. And so, but here, so there's many things to divide us that call for our intelligence, for our understanding, discerning intelligence, and then there's some things that simply unify, and the, these four immeasurables simply unify. It's a wonderful thing. So on this aspirational level, you'll find this everywhere, among virtuous people everywhere, aspiration, that this is a good thing. And it's widely praised, whether it's an atheist, materialist, Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, whatever, when people engage in activity that is clearly a manifestation of loving kindness, benevolence, altruism, it's widely praised just all over the place, right? Among communists and all kinds of people, every people. People people value that. So that's where the root system is. It's something that's common, it's a universal virtue, a set of virtues. But now we are here in a Mahamudra retreat, which is then embedded in, inextricably, necessarily embedded in a Mayana view. Now, this is not to deny the fact, and I think it is a fact, that you'll find other practices and other traditions that bear some strong resemblances to Mahamudra. I, I do accept that. But Mahamudra, as this particular system of theory and practice, it's Buddhist, and within Buddhist, it's not Shravakayana, it's not Theravada, it's embedded in Mahayana. That's just true. That's true. Right. So therefore, the Mahamudra requires bodhicitta as its motivation, which means it requires something more than immeasurable loving-kindness, which is common to Buddhist and non-Buddhist, Sravakayana, Mahayana. It needs something specific, something, something more, something more than immeasurable loving-kindness. And now, specifically for this morning, because I want to get back to the meditation quickly, is Mahamaitri, great loving-kindness. So it's good to have a clear understanding of this. It's not insignificant. It's not just playing with words. And that is Mahamaitri, great loving-kindness. Oddly enough, great loving-kindness is actually far more immense, deeper, broader, richer, more powerful, greater than immeasurable. Immeasurable sounds like it would be bigger, great, and immeasurable. No, it's in fact, the great is greater than the immeasurable. <coughs> it's great because it entails an intention, and intention is more than aspiration. I would like to, if you ask me, would, Alan, would you like to win the lottery? I say, sure, why not? Are you, do you have an intention to buy a lottery ticket? No. 
Never bought one, have no intention of buying one. I'd like to win, I'd like to win the lottery. If you give me a, lottery, a winning lottery ticket, I'll accept it. You know, but I, I have no intention of getting one. So clearly, when you have a desire, an aspiration, and never have any muscle behind it, right? So we, that happens all the time. Desires come up, but if no intention, it doesn't, the gears don't match, we don't move. Well, the, the motivation, the intention, the intention by grain, behind great loving kindness is awesome. And as far as I can tell, I, I, I am a religious study scholar, um, but there's so much I don't know. I know a tiny fraction of what is to be known out there about religious studies. But in terms of my understanding of the world's religions and things outside the world's religions, I don't know of great loving kindness. I've never seen any appearance of it. I've never seen it crop up outside of the Mahayana Buddhist tradition. It's clearly not in Theravada or Shravakayana Palikana. It's not there. That's quite clear. What is it? Well, we know it from the, the classic liturgy. This must go back to India, but I don't know its sources, but it's standard, it's universal, everybody knows it, who knows Mahayana Buddhism well. And the liturgy is here, and this is going to be our meditation. It really calls for a Mahayana worldview. This is why you, you see it really is integral to the Bodhisattva way of life and view of reality, and that is it begins with Semjin tamji dewadan dewi gyodantelna jimarung why couldn't all sentient beings be endowed with happiness and the causes of happiness? It's a question. It starts with a question. Why couldn't? Why couldn't that be so? As one opens one's heart and mind to the vastness of space, and this is very, every bit as vast as that of modern cosmology, with a hundred billion galaxies, and that's, you know, including not only human beings, but a wide variety of sentient beings, opening the heart to this vastness of the whole of reality and attending to sentient beings throughout space and time, asking why couldn't every single sentient being, why couldn't each one, all of them without exception, all of us without exception, why couldn't we find happiness and the causes of happiness? In raising this, of course, this must include hedonic, having basic things like having enough to eat and so forth, but of course it goes beyond that to the eudaimonic, to genuine happiness, to genuine happiness. So why couldn't all sentient beings? This could take a whole morning. It's so rich. But we don't have a whole morning. But why couldn't? I mean, that's, that's a meditation. That's a meditation. And if one is materialist, there is a very quick answer, and that's the end of the discussion. Well, they're going to be dead soon. What do you expect? And when they're dead, they're obliterated. And some people are going to be sick for life. They're not going to be happy. And other people are going to be impoverished for life. That's just a fact, sorry, but that's the way it is. And other people are extremely malevolent, and they have no, no reservations about being extremely malevolent. And some, uh, some people are absolutely cr committed to a greedy way of life. Just the more the better, until they just consume the whole earth. And they have no remorse about that. So that's why everybody can't be happy, because that's it. And that's the end of it, so there is no great loving kindness. If you think it's impossible, then you don't wish for the impossible. But this is not a materialist. This is embedded in this Buddhist worldview. So now we're looking at this vast expanse of time where no sentient being ever gets obliterated. They either remain a sentient being or they wake up. Those are the only two options. So it's kind of in a big picture. It's quite wonderful. 
because the only ending is a happy ending. It may take a long time, but the only ending of being a sentient being is being a Buddha. Otherwise, there is no end. You keep on trucking, 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 and it just goes on indefinitely. For the materialist, the only ending is a sad ending. <laughs> Everybody gets wiped out. Everybody dies. Everybody loses everything forever, eternally, and it's oblivion. Okay? Or we proceed as sentient beings until we wake up. But that's the only that's the only ending. That's the only ending to being a sentient being is awakening. And the only end of awakening, well there is no end of awakening, but then why would you want there to be? No. Moving on, I didn't think this would go on so long, but it's incredibly rich. It's very deep. Very, very deep. This is how deep bodhicitta is, that we have to look beneath the surface of the of the waves. So why couldn't? And the answer is from this perspective, this is where we need this this perspective, this perspective from Rikpa, this perspective of the vastness of space and time, but also that every single sentient being has the potential to achieve perfect awakening. That being the case, why couldn't every single one become enlightened? And the answer is, they could. They just need, we just need, the necessary causes and conditions to come together, to germinate in that seed, to ripen it, to let it grow, and come to full maturation. So everyone could. So there's no reason why every sentient being couldn't, given time, given the, these necessary circumstances, couldn't come to perfect awakening. So, okay, it's possible. Nobody said this is going to be easy. Nobody said this could be short and quick. But okay, it's possible. This whole point, why would anybody aspire for something you already believe is impossible? And that is a rhetorical question. We're not going to do it. Not with any sincerity. We have to have a sense it's possible. Right? So there's the question, and then the answer is, they could. Why couldn't? Chimarum, why couldn't all sentient beings find happiness as the causes of happiness? And they said, and the answer is, they could. Then, Dembergyochik in Tibet. May they be so endowed. May we be so endowed. If it's possible, then may it happen. That's an aspiration. That's where this immeasurable loving kindness comes up. Okay, that's that's sane. But we're not finished yet. The next one is the real shocker. It's a revolution. I've used that word many times and never trivially. Dembaradaki jau. I shall do it. Dak means I. Daki jau. I shall do it. The cosmic courage of that, it just blows the mind. But of course, is it megalomania? Is it insanity? Or is it inconceivably profound? And of course, if the platform for that is I as this sentient being, coarse mind, it's insane megalomania, if we go down a notch, down to substrate consciousness, it's extremely implausible to the point of being ridiculous. And if you go down to the only place this makes sense, then it's okay, good, can do, can do. From the perspective of Buddha mind, I shall do it. Who's going to do that? Who's going to lead all sentient beings to finding happiness and the cause of happiness if it's not Buddha? 
So there you're dropping the anchor of your identity right down to your ground. And from that perspective, you say, I shall do it. But then noticing also that you're not simply a Buddha. You're not already manifestly a Buddha. So then you've not lost your senses. You've not lost your mind. You've not, you're not deluding yourself to think, oh, I'm perfect enlightened Buddha. I'll take care of everybody. You know, then you sound kind of silly again. No, recognizing you're speaking from that perspective, but in fact, meantime, back where you live, there is a sentient being wandering around in samsara. So this, the, the liturgy ends with And that is, may I be blessed by the Guru and the Deity to enable me to do so. May the Guru and the Deity bless me to enable me to, to do so, to carry out that intention to carry through. So, Lama, Guru, we covered that one. And then when it says the deity, it's of course re- referring, it's the term is la, which means deity. And it's called referring to the Yidangila, your Yidam. And the Yidam in, uh, the yidam in, in Sanskrit, Yidam is Ishta Devata. And Ishta means your, the, the one you desire, the one you choose. But this is not, this is absolutely not polytheism, like, oh, which one do you like? Do you like, you like Jupiter? Do you like Zeus? Do you like Sarasvati? Do you like, which one do you like? You know, take your pick, like going into a candy store. It's not that. It's not that. It's not even remotely that. Um, it is among the myriad facets, the myriad displays, the myriad expressions, embodiments, personifications, archetypal representations of the enlightened mind, of Buddha mind. Which one stirs your heart? Which one moves you? Which one arouses a sense of reverence, of devotion? Which one arouses a sense of the sacred that speaks to your heart? That's your Ishta Devata. So maybe it's Buddha Shakyamuni, maybe it's Samanda Bhadra, maybe it's Songkhapa, maybe it's Milarepa, maybe it's Padmasambhava, maybe it's Tara, maybe it's Manjushri. All of these just drawing out different facets. And all of these can turn into idols, but only if you do it. They don't do it to themselves. They are like holographic representations, images, displays of that one Dharmakaya. That one Dharmakaya. So our practice here is twofold. It's a pincer movement we're doing here a pincer movement, like in warfare, military strategy. We're coming in on the core target, self-centeredness of my well-being, considering my well-being being more important than anybody else's. It's a pin, that one's got to go, that one has to be destroyed. No survivors, total annihilation of self-centeredness. And the other one is the reification, the grasping under two existence, those two. So we're bringing, we're coming in with this is a strategy. We're coming with a pincer movement. From the one side, we're coming in with bodhicitta, rooted in the four measurables, and upon them the four greats, and then bodhicitta coming in. It's sure, this is the instrument that will go for total annihilation, an irreversible annihilation of self-centeredness. And as for reification, this grasping, this clinging, and so forth, well, the wisdom of emptiness, the practices, the realization of Mahamudra Dzogchen, they will terminate that 
to the point of complete extinction. So we're coming in from both sides. But through this cultivation of great loving kindness, and from the depths of our heart, as much as we, from, with the uttermost sincerity, this is not a time to play around, this is not a time to pretend, go through some kind of nice religious ritual. It's either real or it's not. But if one can arouse that intention, not merely the aspiration, that's good, but an aspiration without intention has no wheels. It's got to get on the road, it's got to get on the highway. To arouse that intention, sincerely, that's going to stir something. It has to stir something beyond your mind, it has to stir something beyond the substrate consciousness. It has to go deeper, it has to stir that, it has to move it. To say, I need you, I'm calling on you, I'm taking refuge in you, and I'm counting on you. Otherwise this resolve, this intention is bogus. Without you, this is nothing. Without you, I'm going to stop. Because this is crazy, I'm not going to do crazy. I've already done that, been there, done that. No more crazy for me, thank you. This has to be from the depths. And by arousing this, inten this intention, then it stirs the Buddha nature. So from our Mahamudra, the Shamatha trajectory, the Shamatha Vipassana Mahamudra trajectory, we're going for what in Dzogchen is called the Mokata, the essential nature of original purity. That's pristine awareness, that's Buddha nature, Dharmakaya. That's, that's right where we're going, it's a direct beeline. Right? And with the cultivation of great loving-kindness, the, the four greats and bodhicitta, that's going directly to the other aspect of enlightenment, and that is Ranjin Hrundup, its manifest nature of spontaneous actualization. So on the one hand, Dhammakaya is transcendent, transcending space, time, it's chadel, it's beyond activity inconceivably, beyond, beyond. On the one hand, on the other hand, in our world, this phenomenal world, spontaneously actualizing, spontaneously actualizing, Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya, blessings throughout, this universal display of compassion, that spontaneous actualization, Hlundup, those two, Kata and original purity and spontaneous actualization, this cultivation of great loving-kindness, this is a direct trajectory to unveiling the capacity of our own Buddha nature as spontaneous actualization. Then it's complete. So what we have in this eight weeks, it's unfolding, it's kind of like a lotus, just kind of by eight weeks it'll be completely open, is a very balanced practice. That's what we're here for. So, let's go to practice. Namo lama deshe dupe ku kunjo sumge ranjin la datando tu semjin nam janju badu kyapsu chi Namo 
in the Lama, who is the embodiment of the Sugatas, of the nature of the Three Jewels, I, together with the beings of the Six Realms, take refuge until our enlightenment. Semkendo kundundu lama sangye dukne ni kangla kangdu tinle ki doa dewan damshau. Yam-sen-cho-ki-mo-dub-nye-pema-jun-ne-jesu-ta-kodu-kando-mambu-ko-ke-ki-jesu-da-tub-ki-jing-ge-lap-chi-shek-su-su-guru-pema-sidi-h
Let your awareness rest in its own nature, symbolically taking on the form of this radiant pearl of light, a light of purity, of joy, of loving-kindness. Sustaining the flow of the sense of sacred identity of your own being, your own nature, as indivisible with that of the Guru, indivisible with that of the Buddha. From this perspective, peripherally imagining your body is simply a, a glowing apparition, a translucent, transparent field of light in the form of your body, but devoid of substance, devoid of materiality. From this perspective, with all your intelligence and with all your heart, ask of yourself the question, why couldn't all sentient beings find happiness and the causes of happiness. When you see there is a possibility for this, however long it may take, then arouse the aspiration. May it be so. May all sentient beings, without exception, find happiness, including the highest joy and its causes. May it be so. And then seeing that it's just not enough to aspire for something but do nothing about it, to not back it up, then if you will arouse this intention, it is a type of promise, a commitment, made in the presence of the Buddhas and made in the presence of all sentient beings, 
I shall bring this about. I shall enable all sentient beings to find happiness in its causes. This is my mission. I will do it. Then with a clear recognition that while each of us here, everyone listening, has the capacity, the potential for carrying through with this, for the time being we are in fact sentient beings. This aspect of reality doesn't vanish. And therefore to enable us to carry through with this resolve, May I be blessed by the Guru and the Deity to enable me to do so. So we go from an aspiration to an intention to a supplication. As you call upon the Guru, the Deity, or the embodiment of all the awakened ones of all the three times throughout space, as you offer this supplication to them all, imagine light converging in upon you from all sides, the light of blessings. the spontaneously actualized blessings of the Buddhas manifesting in white light converging it upon your body, and yellow light, and red, and deep blue, and green. This rainbow coalition of light all emerging in upon your body, empowering, blessing, enabling. All of the Buddhas behind you all the Buddhas are just blessing you, rising up to meet you. In response to such a pure request, how can we doubt? that the blessings will flow. Why would they hesitate? Why would they show any restraint? For the rest of this session, with each in-breath, imagine receiving, not drawing in, but just as the breath flows in effortlessly without your having to pull it in or exert effort. Likewise, as 
The breath flows in, imagine equally effortlessly the blessings of all the enlightened ones flowing in upon you from all sides above and below. And with each outbreath, stemming from this pearl of light at your heart, Imagine a cascade of white light flowing out in all directions, flowing through every pore of your body. Imagine it in slow, slow motion like an explosion of light. Beginning with the total saturation of your body-mind with this light and then flowing outwards, embracing Anyone who is in your near proximity, in front, behind, to your left or right, any sentient being, with every outbreath, arouse the aspiration. May you find happiness and the causes of happiness. This flowing of light is symbolic enactment of your intention. Imagine this aspiration and this intention being realized, actualized here and now in this realm of possibility. Imagine those around you finding perfect joy, fully awakening. Breathing in the light of all the enlightened ones and breathing out with every exhalation and ever-expanding sphere of great loving-kindness. And imagine each one, every sentient being included, within this sphere of light. Fulfilling, realizing their eternal longing, their wish to find the highest happiness irreversibly.
Then release all appearances and all aspirations, all doing. Simply rest your awareness in its own nature. So, very briefly, even within the context of bodhicitta, there are two types of bodhicitta, as many of you know. There's the aspiring bodhicitta, which is indeed more than an aspiration, it is an intention. But again, an intention that you don't act on is kind of hollow, right? Then who cares whether it's an, how would you know that it's an intention if a person's not doing anything about it, right? And so the activated form of bodhicitta is called engaged bodhicitta, jukte semke. And this is where, with that motivational aspiration, that intention, then you're actually doing something to enable you to carry through and fulfill, to complete the mission. It's very important, I think it's actually very, very important, that we recognize that by simply doing a, a practice like this, in quiet, with outwardly nothing happening, if a behavioral psychologist were looking at us, they'd say, well, you're not doing anything. And we're not. We're not doing anything measurable physically, which is like, and we're also not eating potato salad, but so what? <laughs> Don't you get it? There's more to human existence than behavior or molecules. We're doing something. This is doing something. This is accumulating karma from a Buddhist perspective. It's doing something. It is carrying through with the resolve. At the same time, is this practice, is it effective in some manifest way? So, Sally's here to be doing scientific measurements. Can't measure intention, I don't think. Can't measure aspiration. But you can measure what is displayed in the world. You operationalize it. So it's good. It's a type of research worth doing. It's not complete, but then it wasn't pretending to be complete. Not by any, you know, sensible person. 
So how would we know, how would we know, let alone waiting for some scientists to check up on us, how would we know whether this practice is actually has legs, whether it's actually doing something? And I can tell the answer, it's very simple. You already have the answer for shamatha, you know that perfectly well, three qualities, right? Here it is. And that is the whole point of this practice is, of course, it is to transform the heart, to arouse a motivation, to open the heart, all of that, definitely, absolutely. But in terms of our actually engaging with the world, if we find that it's as a result of this type of practice, that we are, here's the verb, poised, poised to act benevolently. If our, our antenna are up, we're aware of the sentient beings around us as subjects like ourselves. And we see that there is some sentient being there wishing for happiness and maybe it could use a bit of help. We're already predisposed, predisposed, poised, ready to launch. It hardly takes anything to tip us into action. To say, of course, that's why I got off my cushion. To be of service. What can I do? So there's no effort there. It's kind of like, it's like being right on the edge of a precipice. And, and then somebody goes, and then you fall. It doesn't take any effort. And the is seeing somebody else in need of some help to find happiness. And then you fall into benevolent activity. So no resistance. And then kind of effortless. Because if you're already there, if you're poised, I mean, you can imagine this, right? You're just there, you're, you're just so perfectly balanced that if one little ounce pushes you this way, you'll fall, one ounce, you'll, you'll stay. But it hardly needs anything, and you tip right over into activity. That's effortless. You fall, if somebody goes, you fall effortlessly. Like that. Something like that. Maybe. <laughs> Find out. Enjoy your morning. The money sessions will be just a wee bit late, a couple, couple of minutes late. <laughs>